Hello, hello. Hello, how's it going? Good, good. Okay, so I guess uh, for the first episode of the still unnamed podcast, I'll probably come up with a name for the next episode, but I, I just want to jump in today and really get this intro and the discussion started. So um, I'll, I'll start by introducing myself. Uh, my name is Theory Man Theo. I go by a lot of different names, but generally just those are kind of the aliases that I use. Um, this, this is a podcast that I kind of wanted to make as sort of a discussion slash commentary as more of an open-minded approach with discussion of topics and mainly technology, but I'm going to try to not limit it exclusively to that. And I also am being joined by Gabe from the Libre Solutions Network. And actually, just go go ahead and introduce yourself. Yes, thank you, uh, Theory. It's uh, been a passion project of mine, you know, for quite a few years, honestly, even before uh, I was launched into it in late 2021, I actually had always wanted to kind of participate in the discussion on online digital freedom and liberty because I did feel like there were some gaps specifically on kind of uh, – you know, the more center-right side of the political spectrum, where it did seem like a lot of people were kind of falling for grifts and these kind of things. So I really wanted to start it as kind of almost an education project for people of, you know, a particular background. And I think it's been actually quite successful. And I've gotten a lot of interesting feedback, though I will say, as uh, somebody with our level of technical expertise, it's very easy to take things for granted. So I feel like while I have done a good job reaching down, there's still a long way to go to, you know, uh, an uninitiated audience and things like that. But uh, I've gotten a lot of people telling me it's really opened their eyes to some of these issues because, you know, a lot of people will focus on censorship. But, you know, surveillance is kind of the other side of that coin. You know, you really do need to worry about, you know, how people's data are being used. And one of the recent uh, hairs I'd like to split is I point out that you know, data about you isn't always the same as your data. If, you know, there's a camera somewhere recording people, you know, walking by, you know, that's data about you, but it's different from your data. And so yeah. I really try to add detail in spaces that I find are kind of oversimplified, whether for expedience or honestly, just to uh, make it more convenient. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, Libre Solutions has been an absolutely wonderful resource for anyone who really wants to, you know, delve into that realm of computing and become a bit more educated, learn a bit more. Um, it's certainly more interesting than all that I've done so far, but, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's an absolutely, uh, astounding effort that you put into it and a lot has come out of it. Yeah. So I, I kind of wanted to start this this episode's discussion since we don't really have a specific topic and it's more of like a getting to know us sort of thing. It's kind of like, what are your thoughts on the current state of technology it is now? Um, it's more of an open-ended question. It doesn't necessarily have to be strictly related to it, but, you know, tangentially related, of course. Well, I think we're at something pretty close to an inflection point. I've been thinking about this recently, especially because, you know, New Year's and everybody's thinking about, oh, what's up for the year ahead? And, you know, I saw an interesting thread in the Free Software Foundation. You know, if you're a member of the Free Software Foundation, they have member forums. And somebody asked a, a while back, would free software 
diverge from, you know, mainstream technology or, you know, big tech technology. And truthfully, some of the comments were kind of skeptical. Some people really embraced the idea. And I wasn't sure when I honestly was reading the thread. I'm like, I can really see this go either way. Truthfully, I am seeing signs that it is actually uh, diverging. You know, a perfect example in the headlines right now is that Microsoft is adding a GitHub Copilot, uh, you know, button to their keyboards now. So, you know, there's this integration of these AI tools that really does change the game in some ways. Now, you can bind that button to anything. It's like the button itself probably isn't that big a deal, but it's an interesting sign about how much devices are going to probably specialize and people's user experience is going to specialize. And then in parallel to all this, you have people not only self-hosting a couple of services, but actually taking self-hosting seriously. There are many, you know, communities where people provide services for free with, you know, end-to-end -end encrypted chats. So it's like they're trying to help people have some privacy or at least independence from the big tech organizations. And so I see this big, massive push in the technology space for people to reclaim their digital autonomy, because I do think it is more about data. It's also, can you control your own computing? And so I think that divergence is really starting. And what makes that kind of crazy right now is that it's creating opportunities, but also lots of uncertainty. For instance, you know, containerization is a fascinating concept that we're probably going to discuss to death on this podcast. But the thing is, is that uh, containerization was built to really help big tech manage all their big complicated services. But it's also helping self-hosters because the containerization technology is being used to build interfaces that make it easier for end users to run all their own services. And I find that a fascinating way where even the big top down, you know, uh, big tech services will bleed down into the regular home level. And I think we're kind of at a point where we will not be able to predict how different things will be 10, 20 years from now. And that's to not even to discuss some of the crazier, you know, tech shakeups. We've got risk five architecture going onto the market, which is supposed to be more open. We've got some very fascinating, I saw it, I think it was out of Georgia University where they built their first uh, graphene uh, semiconductor. So really, oh, we wow. could see, yeah, we could see technology change in incredible ways. And I think now is the time to seriously think about what direction we want to go and how we want to push that along. Yeah, yeah, that, that you summarize that really great. Um, I think definitely we're at a crossroads. And especially now with how popular technology has become just in everyday life, like you will see it around you everywhere. I interact with it for work, for school, for casual stuff. It's everywhere. And I think where we take things now as both end users and employees and, you know, potential, you know, enterprise, future enterprise uh, bodies, I think how we use and interface with technology is going to greatly determine what will happen in the future. And I think, I think at least we're making a good, a good start by reclaiming the net, by making hosting and running and providing services for ourselves, for other people, for our communities more accessible and easier to do. And I think that's been a great thing because I've been self-hosting for mm, three years now, and um, I, I won't. I, I will say I am not the biggest guru. I don't have you know 
every single software stack imaginable hosted, but I have a good majority of the stuff running on my own hardware, and it's been a wonderful experience. We're talking about, you know, basic mail, chat, uh, cloud services, couple, I think I have like Jellyfin for MIDI and stuff when I ever, whenever I do it on the offhand, and then of course, you know, Pleroma for, you know, the average social interaction and things like that. I think a lot of what we have so far is such a great foundation, and it's been easier than ever now to start actually hosting and running all of this software on relatively low-power hardware. Absolutely. You know, Raspberry Pis are, you know, really, get, they get the headlines when there's a new Raspberry Pi, and they are good devices for getting started. But people really underestimate how easy it is to just take a used, you know, desktop system or laptop that hasn't gotten some love in a while and running, you know, all kinds of things off it. Because, you know, a website doesn't take a whole lot of space. Even chats don't take a whole lot of space. It's really only in hosting videos. If you get into PeerTube is when space and other resources start to be a really big constraint. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I've actually, some of my stuff is hosted off an old, I think it was like 2017 gaming rig. That was my old rig before I upgraded to some newer hardware that's still in the process of being migrated to not terrible hardware, but that, that will come in due time. I really am fascinated, fascinated at the moment about how people are able to do more with less. Because one of the reasons I got really obsessed with static sites is after Luke Smith's uh, How to Actually Understand Hugo video he did, I thought there are so many aspects of this that people actually really need to understand. And my top priority was kind of trying to figure out how to demonstrate that in the Liver Solutions Network and uh, associated projects. But one of the most important takeaways I think is really worth considering is that you don't need a whole lot of, you know, expensive hardware, or it doesn't even cost you that much in bandwidth. And you can really do a whole lot with the simple stuff. And so when people are just trying to do the basics, like, oh, how do I share information? How do I, you know, run, you know, basic service, you know, it really is way more within reach than most people know. The challenge, though, is yes, set up, it's still very heavy on the setup side for many people. And so that's where the biggest challenge, you know, I think, one of the greatest challenges for many people starting out is just figuring out how do I get Linux on a machine and how do I learn the, you know, shell scripting but or how to use the shell, you know, period. But once that's done, I think, you know, most people are in the clear. Everything kind of just flows from that. Yeah, I, I would hard agree. I think I think the biggest the biggest stepping stone for, you know, self-hosting and running that is essentially how does this system work? How do I get it to do what I want? Because a lot of people are used to, I, I want to f- refrain from saying the Windows way because it's not entirely true, but it's the essence of what I'm getting at. You know, the way of how the consumer systems, computer systems do something. And the shell is a for, is really foreign. A lot of people see it and it's this black box. You put in stuff into it and mysterious stuff comes out. And <laughs> yeah. And once you actually get to understanding it, it's not that difficult to actually, you know, understand and host and run stuff. And I think a lot of people, they have, um, choice paralysis where there's so much, so many ways to do the one thing. 
and it's overwhelming. So people often, you know, freeze up and like, wait, what? So what way do I do it? Because there's multiple ways to deploy your web server. You could just run it as a binary through your, you know, your systems package manager, or you could run it on a Docker system, or you could have two separate machines, one running your web server, one running your software. And then somehow mesh those together. Um, that that's another rant for another day of <laughs> well, frustration. I would, say, I would say the big gotchas that probably get people starting out though is there are a lot of things that just aren't super intuitive if you're not aware of them. You know, uh, many people will complain about DNS. It's like, how do I get uh, my server to you know point to an actual web address? And then then you have to deal with ports or whether you're tunneling into you know another server to get your connection across. Fundamentally, I think part of the problem is you can go a long way to create a box for somebody, you know, pre-installed with all these different services and they just plug it in and start it up, right? Well, no, there are some, I won't say arbitrary, but I will say there are some barriers that do require some manual intervention. And so I think one of the major barriers is that it isn't, you know, plug and play, but I think we are as close to a plug and play server as anyone will realistically get unless we completely overhaul DNS or some other crazy proposal that isn't likely to happen anytime soon. Yeah. And I'm going to say that probably that, you know, that bit of manual effort that's required before you get into things is probably a good learning experience, at least for some people, because as far as, you know, my journey with hosting, um, you can automate stuff and that's great. But if you don't necessarily know what the automation does, if you have an issue, you know, say running a particular piece of software on production, something crashes, something breaks, and you know how to do it manually, you can go in and intervene. So I think having at least some manual intervention as a prerequisite is probably a good thing that leads to more healthier stacks and more healthier networks. Well, speaking of the overall state of technology, that's something I see coming up all the time where, you know, we can do things, you know, you can do everything in JavaScript now. There's JavaScript on the server that's on the client side in the browser. And people are kind of wondering, well, just because we can, should we? You know, it's really easy to look at some of these things. And I will admit myself, one of the things that has held me back from getting more into software development is I personally find many of these build systems Byzantine and intimidating. And I can only imagine how much worse it is for people starting out who don't even know how to program. I can write, you know, programs that work in Python and other languages. I've played around with Rust in a bit. But when, you know, Rust is kind of a perfect example here. It's like, oh, we've got this crazy complicated build system that's constantly downloading all these things. And don't get me wrong, Cargo is a really handy tool to have. I understand why it is the way it is. But the challenge is, is how do you make an elegant build system, which I think elegance is probably the goal when it comes to where we want technology to go because it's all well and good that it accomplishes all the things we want it to do but there are there is a lot of waste embedded in many of these processes that do either filter people out either they just don't want to spend the time learning a byzantine system because then you're investing your entire you know mind share into that or it's just you know needlessly pushing people away yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned Carco because I have I haven't really played around with the rest all that much because more of where my skills lie at are like C, Go, and Python because those are you know the three main languages that I use a lot. But I think I think there's definitely a balance between 
oh, hey, here's your, you know, for like a, you know, a casual large C project, here's your autoconf and your 17 different build files just to generate, you know, your one build script and, oh, cross your fingers, hope that it works on your platform. Um, whereas you have something like Python where it's like, oh, let's grab in 200 different dependencies for all of your software, but as long as your interpreter works on your system, you're good. I think, I think there's something to be said about uh, a more elegant solution in between. And I think I, I am more biased towards the sort of rust or go away of how the compiler handles it. Because for one, they're all statically linked. And I'm going to be honest, static linked binaries, sure, they're a bit bigger, but I think they do improve a lot of things as far as runtime is considered, as far as distribution is considered, as far as build tooling is considered. It's all great. But what Cargo and, you know, GoGC uh, handle for you rather than something like GCC is they do all of the linking, they do all of the library searching, they do all of that. Instead of you know, all of the build tools doing that and you, the user, having to, you know, intervene if something doesn't go right. Whereas Go, it's very predictable and even with Cargo, very predictable, very, um, very simple and it works most of the time. Yeah, and I'm kind of optimistic when it comes to a lot of this because although I don't agree with some of where this comes from. I do think efficiency is a, a goal worth striving for, and I'm seeing a big emphasis on people trying to push for code to be more, you know, actually energy efficient, but let's be honest, energy efficient is kind of a proxy of time efficiency as well. Yeah. And so I do expect that as some of the trends that are going on right now continue, software may actually improve a great deal, and people are seriously giving this stuff a serious look, and one of the reasons why I like self-hosting specifically is in a you know free software paradigm where you can make your own changes. You know, I do think computing can become more personal and individualized. You know, I was really excited when I saw GrayJ, you know, that Futo app come onto the scene mm -hmm. and it had a very fascinating plugin system. Now I'm a little disappointed that the app itself isn't fully free. You know, I think there's a bit of a missed opportunity there. But what the plugin system allowed is it is a video player app with all kinds of other fancy stuff. But the really cool thing is that any video site could be added or any media repository, let's be real, could be added by building your own plugin. And, you know, users could even distribute it themselves. And I think that is a phenomenal model for how to do things. I do think plugins, especially user configurable plugins, are definitely the way to go to add flexibility without making the software itself cumbersome or too complicated. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think I think extensibility is something that should definitely be uh, a key point of focus for software because, you know, software that you can extend and you can add onto and you can improve is great. Adds a lot to the end user experience. It's why, you know, developer tools often have a lot of ways you can extend them. And the ones that aren't so great are more constrained and limited. That's why, you know, editors like Vim or Emacs have been the gold standard for years and years on end. And really, once you start using those editors and you get them toned and configured and set up the way you like, 
a lot of the IDE tools, like even Visual Studio sometimes lags behind just because you've got this tool that essentially works exactly the way you want it and exactly the way you anticipate it. Yeah, because, you know, one size may not fit all, but if people are able to make just the small gradient changes they need to make for their own stuff, it can make a huge difference. And I think when it comes to personal computing, you know, one of the fascinating aspects of this whole self-hosting revolution is the Fediverse. You know, I actually met you over the Fediverse, and uh, I like that I get to host my own server called MissKey. What are you running at the moment? I don't remember. Oh, gosh. I'm running running a coma, but I think it's like a year-old release of it. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) Well, so I I actually have a Pleroma. I have a Pleroma node ready to deploy. I just haven't gotten around to actually, you know, setting up and getting all of my stuff moved over. Uh, for one, I, I am a bit lazy when it comes to things. And uh, number two, I've just never really gotten gotten into it. So I, I, I will move over at some point. I keep telling myself this, but someday it will happen. But for now, I'm just sticking with the coma. Yeah, and the reason why I want to, you know, really touch on the Fediverse for sure is I am really excited about what it can be. You know, it's very easy to get distressed when you first join it and like, oh, no, not all the servers talk to each other. But that's kind of how the Internet works in general. You know, it's not like Parler, Twitter and, you know, Truth Social all interact together. You know, they're all different entities. So that to me, that's not new. But I do think the you know, clients connecting to servers that connect to other servers is probably a huge game-changing paradigm. And I think is one of the things that will define this current era where people are starting to notice, hey, maybe we can do this a little differently. And so, you know, I'm a huge fan of uh, William Magos. He talks about on his Culture War show where he's like a huge Fediverse evangelist. And his basically reason for liking it is that we can actually have meritocratic virality you know suddenly it's not a big tech deciding everybody needs to see this because you know elon musk replied to it or something silly or roughly equivalent to that it's like oh people just boost things because they think it's interesting and they're shared with other people and it's like then someone would be like oh but what about the bots but not everybody has to follow the bots it's a system where every person has their own control and people mediate that organically and i do think what makes the Fediverse, at least in its current form, so exciting is even regardless of what side of the Fediverse you're on, you know, there's that whole rainbow curtain shenanigans. But, you know, truthfully, it is a purely organic social network or a set of purely organic social networks. And, you know, obviously, if we're going to talk about the Fediverse, there's other decentralized protocols, which is why in my year in review, I put uh, Alex Gleason's Noster to Fediverse bridge in as a big story because fundamentally, when we use a open interoperable protocol, we it actually doesn't even matter if we use the same one. As long as you are sticking to a standard, bridging those standards together is probably not as hard as one would think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, th- I think one of the interesting things about the Fediverse too is, you know, I've been, I've tried to get certain people on it and, you know, I've had mixed results with it. Sometimes I've been able to get people on. Some have been on and off. Um, of course, I, my history with it actually is I came to Mastodon sometime, I think it was early 2019 on an instance called Koyu.space. I think it still exists. 
or at least in part, because I ended up migrating off of it because the admin was doing some database shenanigans and whatnot. But I never really got interested because, again, it was on the Mastodon network side of the Fetty. And I didn't really have a whole lot of interest in it. I wasn't super invested. It didn't really feel organic. And I was, you know, distracted with other things at the time. Um, but sometime around 2022... Um, it was in, uh, I think it was like a Discord server with DCC, and he ended up convincing me to get onto Starnix Network, their Mastodon, and then I found about Pleroma, and then I, you know, ran my own, and the rest is history, but it's interesting, because I see there's, there's kind of two types of people that perceive the Fetty. There's the ones that really only look on the surface level, and see, like, you know, the massive instances like Post or NCD or Based, and they're like, ooh, I don't want this. And then there's the actual people that give it time and effort, and then they actually find, oh, wow, if I weed through all of that garbage, I actually find something that's pretty good. And so I think there's, you know, two kinds of people, you know, the people that hop on the hype train and then leave because, oh, hmm, not as interesting as I thought. Or the people who actually give it a bit of time and they're like, oh, hey, this is actually pretty cool. I like all the content on here. And as well, you know, being that it's a lot of organic content, you'll often find these sort of circles of users that interact with different people. So you'll have. Yeah, you really. I think you see this all the time when people point out, you know, oh, this person joined and then they just quit. And a truly organic social network, and I'm not saying this is the Fediverse is perfect at that, but it's a certainly a big step in that direction. It works so fundamentally different. It's so hard to really think of how to interact in it until you actually do. You kind of just have to learn by doing. It's very hard to explain to somebody, oh, you know, your feed is entirely controlled by what you do. Yeah. And it is very personal. It is very – and that does make it hard in some ways because a lot of that is actually outside of your control. You can't control what other people are posting even if, you know, you run your own instance. You can only control what your own instance can see, what you're, you know, muting or blocking or whatever um, and what you're subscribing to. And that really does give you a lot of power. It gives you all the power the big tech giants has. And with that power, introduces complexities and learning curves. And I think it's worth it. Because I think the biggest advantage now is that if there are communities who are actually interested in working together, suddenly they don't all have to be under a single user system. And this is why I think Federation or this server-to-server paradigm is even bigger than the Fediverse itself. Because once people realize, oh, shoot, we don't actually need to all manage each other's permissions at such a fine-tuned level and software that accounts for that can really expand the opportunities for people who want to cooperate, but maybe not be as tightly knit to each other as, you know, if they all use the same platform or whatever. Yeah. And actually, um, I think the Fetty's in a really good spot, at least now, because it has some external attention. But the Mastodon side, I'm going to be honest, is slowly crumbling, um, mainly because there's Oh, so much drama from that side. I swear, if you're there, you can find some level of inter-instance drama. Some admin has some issue. Some user causes a ruckus or something like that. And 
I think it was within the past couple of months, Miss Kio has grown by, I think it was tenfold or something like that. Oh, damn. And it's now the fifth biggest instance that does not run Mastodon, which... If that's the case, that is a huge win for, you know, a lot of the other instances around because, you know, less Mastodon dominance means there's a lot more opportunity for, you know, people to find these other stacks of software, which I'm going to be honest, run and perform way better than Mastodon. Yeah, I mean, I set up my own MISKEY because I thought the client itself, like, honestly, looked more in line with what I wanted out of a social media, you know, like I like the fancy, you know, web app client. I like, you know, the fact that it had emoji reactions out of the box, you know, at the time I was setting it up, that wasn't something you would get everywhere on Mastodon. I believe Mastodon has it now, but that's the other fascinating part about honestly any decentralized network, but the Fediverse in particular is that people can kind of innovate or, you know, adopt changes at their own pace. Somebody can make you know, their own fancy server. There are many startup, you know, somebody builds their own Fediverse server and just runs it. And I'm seeing more and more as time goes on. And I really love this. I really love that not everybody has to be forced onto the same software package to interact together. And I think it's such a huge opportunity that, you know, it's a shame more people aren't on it. And I'll admit, I have had an easier time finding people on the Fediverse than bringing people to it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think I think bringing people who are more used to the, I want to say neutered experience of normal social media, bringing them over to the Fetty is a bit of a challenge because it is, it is a very different transition. Uh, for one, you know, bringing a Twitter user over to the Fetty is a disaster. It's not going to happen. The culture, the cultures of both are so different. And, you know, Twitter has a lot more appeal in certain areas for some people. But I think overall, there's a lot of opportunity and you just have to give it that chance. You have to really just say, all right, I'm going to really just put my feet in, get them wet, find out. And eventually you'll find somewhere that you vibe with. Well, in my 2023 recap, I kind of shamed not my audience specifically, but people in the overall, you know, freedom movement, whatever, if you can call it that, I basically said, if we as liberty minded individuals want decentralized, you know, alternatives to these big tech solutions, we need to show up, you know, it is disappointing when you go to these decentralized alternatives, and they're full of people who are honestly okay with censorship. And that's kind of what has made Mastodon the way it is. But, you know, Mastodon isn't the only part of this system. And so I do think it's important for those of us who do want, you know, more pro-human, pro-liberty values. We need to show up. We need to actually build, you know, the community we want people to join. And like now's a great time to be a first mover. I mean, honestly, it's been the Fediverse isn't new. It's been around for quite some time, but it's still small compared to other things. And I guess the irony here is I can't really pro promise anyone any profit from it. It is purely organic. You being first isn't really going to give you any advantages over somebody who joins, honestly, six years from now. But what it does do is it gives you the opportunity to actually engage with it and be part of shaping the future. Yeah. And actually, to bounce off what you said about how you may not be able to profit off of it, I would argue that you know, if you really want something organic and something that is actually meaningful, you aren't going to profit off of it. At least 
not in bros or, you know, what you would expect anyway. And I think this is interesting because Mastodon is a great example of what a profit-focused mindset is for an open-source project as a protocol baseline, at least back in 2019, 2018, when it was still very big. It isn't as big now. It feels more like Pluroma and Miski are starting to pick up that steam where Mastodon has lost it. But, I mean, if you look at Mastodon right now, it is essentially designed to be a very clean, pristine, open-source Twitter clone politically correct and all. And they've got a lot of sponsorship from various companies for that. Um, I don't have their site up, you know, at this current moment, but I bet you, you go look and you look at their site, you probably won't see much mention of Fediverse or other software stacks other than Mastodon. And you'll see a lot of, you know, corporate interest because I know that Vivaldi, BBC, I think Cloudflare and a couple of other companies have actually gone and ran their own Mastodon nodes. That's had varying levels of success. But I think the interesting difference between, you know, the all Fetty, the dark Fetty versus the Mastodon network is how much organic growth has happened in the, the all Fetty compared to the Mastodon network. Because the Mastodon de- network, people have kind of ended up almost balling them up into the same stereotype of people because they end up being more or less that kind of person. Whereas the Alfetti, there's a lot of different circles that you have, and you can't necessarily just ball them all up in one group other than to ball them all up as the Alfetti, you know, the ones blocked by Mastodon. Right, and at the risk of bringing up some drama, you know, I got the most flack ever I did on the Fediverse by sticking up for somebody who has very different political beliefs than me. You know, it's like I'm more in the libertarian circles, and he's, you know, more on, uh, you know, the socialist side of things. And I was like, hey, you know, this guy isn't as bad as people are making him out to be. And I got a lot of, you know, blocks for that. You know, suddenly uh, I, I, I'm a monster for defending somebody, which is which is fine. But the thing is, is that I originally thought I was choosing, you know, all videos like, well, I want to invest on the more free speech side. I want to, you know, provide content to really be participating on this side of the network. But the truth is, based off who and really what I am, that choice was already made for me. I was never going to fit in the good graces of the Mastodon network. And honestly, I wonder how many people really do you know you point out it's like it creates this monoculture but not only does it create a monoculture but like any deviation in really strange and unintuitive ways really gets you cast out and so i don't think i ever really or many other people would have even had a chance to fit in which is kind of what makes alt fetty so interesting is you get the people who are committed enough to free software to run their own services or participate in a relatively independent community but they're willing to stick it out despite, you know, being lumped in with all the other uh, rejects from the main network. And I think, as you say, you know, Mastodon's kind of starting to crumble as far as community. You know, a lot of influential users tried to make Firefish, which was a fork of Miskey, become a thing. And that just straight up fell apart. Um, yeah. You know, I believe that whole process is in chaos now and they're trying to make a new uh, Fediverse server. Yeah, and, and actually what's interesting, and I might piggyback off this with project governance, I found it really interesting. There's been a lot of drama in kind of both sides of the software stack 
or rather both sides of the Fetty and their software stacks. You know, I, I'm somewhat aware of there was some issues with Lane and Alex early on with Plural, and that caused them to, you know, split off. So Alex is now doing rebase and Lane's doing whatever he's doing on Pleroma. And then there was some drama with Pleroma itself. And so now people forked it off to Acoma, which is now an irrelevant fork. I'm going to be completely honest. It is an irrelevant fork. And then I think like, I think there was one other fork of Pleroma. I'm not entirely sure what it is. But again, you know, a lot of these people, and it's very interesting, I don't really understand this behavior, but they almost look as if, you know, the, the maintainer's political ideas and beliefs are, you know, what defines the project. So, you know, if I am a slightly right-leaning uh, conservative developer writing a piece of software, then my right, you know, then, you know, my right-wing opinions are projected onto that software, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's very interesting because a lot of these projects with this mindset of governance often, you know, collapse or fall apart like Firefish. And that's only, you know, me theorizing about it was, but, you know, considering the people uh, with one calculator and Atomic Poet and a couple of others that I have known from prior interactions on the Fetty, I can only assume that was bound to happen. That was not a matter of if, it was a matter of when. And even going on to other software projects like the Forjo incident, where Giddy is like, okay, we're going to make an LLC company to help support the project. And some people were absolutely losing their minds over it. And what I could only say is probably not really what you think it is, because it was definitely a overreaction in many regards, because now the Forjo project is quite a ways behind Giddy, and Giddy is blasting ahead because it has more monetary resources than ever, whereas Forjo is kind of, you know, almost flatlining in certain cases. I think the primary maintainer of Forjo is focusing more on adding federation to Forjo rather than keeping it up to date with what Giddy does, which is an interesting choice in my opinion, but I'm not necessarily going to shoot it down just for, you know, taking that route. Yeah, like I think the idea of Forge Federation is really worth giving as much time and attention as it can get because like i mentioned earlier you know being able to interact and collaborate without all being under the same at least just authentication system is a pretty big benefit like i can i can defend that choice though going back to the like overlap between social politics and technology you know it's fascinating to me is you know there was mozilla social and this, I think, overlaps great with what you just said about Forjo, where it's like you have Mozilla that runs Firefox, and there was some, you know, contingencies over the fact that the CEO is making tons of money and Firefox adoption isn't really going up. And people are, I think, rightly being a little concerned that maybe the money is not going into actually making a good browser that is supposed to compete with Google Chrome as we would like. And there's the question of funding is like, where does their money come from? And so I think there is a rightful concern when people see these, you know, corporate or even just money interests leaking into important projects, which is probably why they freaked out over Gitty. But the thing is, is that I think there is also the other side of that, 
where if you're only supporting or looking at or using projects because they share your social vision, you can fall into the affinity scam trap where somebody dresses themselves up in your morality, your social, you know, strata, your values or whatever it happens to be. And, you know, this has been used to perpetrate a lot of frauds. There was that god awful, was it called the Freedom Phone, where it's like it was just a, you know, lineage yeah. OS flashed, you know, overpriced, you know, China phone. Like it's the kind of thing that it is quite sad how many people, honestly, across the political spectrum get suckered in by these honestly outright scams. But it works because people are being taught right now that if this person shares my social values or political goals or whatever it is, they must be doing everything else right, which is not true at all. There are many people I've met, especially on the Fediverse, who have very different political beliefs. Honestly, I'm not even sure we could get a well get along that well together personally, but I respect what they're doing and I can recognize their technical skill. And I think this is such a huge problem where it's more of a social one than a technological one at this point, where people are being taught to believe that just because someone shares, you know, has overlapping characteristics is with me that that means it's all legit. It's all above board. There's nothing to be concerned about. And I think that is a very dangerous trap to fall into. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I think also being a developer myself and kind of being more in on the drama of maintainers and certain, you know, project fallouts. Um, I think there's a very interesting sort of phenomena that has happened in the last couple of years that I like to call the GitHub 10x developer. Um, it, it's more of it's more of uh, poking fun at the actual term rather than an actual defining term, but it's the devs that really use their project as a vessel for clout and for pers you know, um, personal uplifting rather than, you know, making software for the sake of software. And I think, and it's not a fully perfect example, but I'm going to mention Drew DeVault because that is um, one developer that I think has gained a lot of traction, so much so that he's gotten a locals thread on Kiwi Farms, which I find oh, absolutely hilarious. But, you know, even then, all of the drama that he's ended up getting in is he makes a decision on something that is, you know, the finality, and it's some stupid political garbage. And... Instead of focusing on the software itself, he ends up, you know, causing a lot of issues. I think it was with Hyperland. And yeah, this, yeah, so this has been some drama with him, but even preceding him, you know, Hyperland had no, you know, code of conduct, which is, you know, some text file that says, oh yeah, you know, this is how you're supposed to behave in our issue tracker, yada, yada, so on and so forth. And the developer's like, I don't really need this. Why are you? telling me to force this in and it gained a lot of traction so much so that other developers of other software stacks were starting to hard code in you know oh if this client is running hyperland let's just not you know run or let's not ship this particular package in our distro because of you know what is essentially a developer having their own choice on how to run their own software project conflicting with the overall general consensus of the GitHub developer culture of whatever it is, which I find so interesting because, you know, if it really is about software and about running software that you can modify, why is that such a big point of contention? 
Yeah, I I am very concerned that this is where I really emphasize that like freedom freedom minded individuals really need to show up big in this space because this could either become the new standard if you know these overbearing codes of conduct and because they're downstream of other social political movements. Let's be real here. Yeah. But the thing is, is they're very well entrenched right now. Like anything that wants to receive, I assume, corporate funding or any kind of real partnerships in the big boy world, you know, they are, you know, part of the game right now. And so really it's on us, you know, people who want to be on the other side of that equation to come up with something that actually works better. Now, I think when it comes to software projects blocking each other at a technical level that way, I think that will be seen in the future as honestly quite childish and petty, and people will probably not look very well on that kind of behavior. I recognize why people think it's this important, though, because people are kind of at each other's throats for all kinds of reasons these days, and I understand the temptation to really, you know, have it out on every level possible. The problem is, is that I think people kind of need to take a step back and realize that good software that works for everybody is probably a better net good than getting into this bizarre Byzantine fight of, okay, we're going to allow these people to use it, but not these people for these reasons and build this like super insane bureaucracy around it. Now, that doesn't mean that the very small kernel of truth to these things that is worth considering, which is, yeah, if you run a software project, it probably is good. To have a codified set of rules of like, hey, this is the behavior we'll, we'll not tolerate. And I can defend a certain amount of that. It's just it gets tough when we're talking about projects that people can contribute to anonymously. If somebody's contributing anonymously to something or, you know, detach from their online person, their, their real personality, how much should their real personality bleed into it, if at all? I think there's a lot of discussion that needs to be had with it. And I worry in many ways, when I see people saying, oh, well, we got to balance these things. Unfortunately, balancing, you know, rights versus sovereignty always seems to be a discussion of, oh, we got to compromise to make the corporations happy. And it's like, no, we got to build our own norms, our own standards. And that's really is important. And maybe, you know, that's part of the discussion, but I don't think it's doomed. I just think some of the behavior does need to change so that some of these measures aren't taken. Yeah, for sure. And what I find like even stupid about this whole issue is that, well, okay, you're maintaining this piece of software. If someone's kicking you off, you can just, you know, yeet them off the discussion tracker or tell them to shut up or, you know, just have them not contribute anymore. You don't need a set of written rules to tell you, oh, hey, that's not very nice. You should go away. You know, you're the software, you're the maintainer, you call the shots. That's, you know, that's the implicitly assumed rule. I don't get why we have these long, you know, lists of text of, you know, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do, because I feel like that takes focus away from actually writing the software and moderating the community outside the software, which, let's be real, as a software developer, there are going to be people that use your software and that benefit off your software that you will hate, that you will loathe. And that's just the matter of fact. Like, that's life. Buckle up. <laughs> that's what you, that's what's going to happen. No, I don't like it, but you have to deal with it. 
and know with how you deal with that, if you say, oh, well, they're using my software, it's for the greater good, that's a better mentality than, oh, they shouldn't be using my software, ban them off the site. Because, you know, those people that, you know, you hate so much might actually bring benefit to you, especially in the case of a software project. Well, to steel man it a little bit, though, to be fair, there is kind of this problem right now where there is a very exaggerated and extreme sense of harm right now where people will honestly again across the political spectrum will perceive you know honestly probably not even intended slights to be serious attacks and then there's this kind of argument again all over the political spectrum whether it's the mainstream it's it's misinformation on the you know alt mainstream it's psyops you know it's like there's this idea that people have where they fundamentally agree that narrative control is an important way of keeping people safe and i think that entire notion needs to be entirely discredited again at a social level not, don't don't fight it in some github repositories issue pages or anything silly like that like just on a social level it's important to honestly people do need proper boundaries you know maybe you know one of the biggest mistakes i think socially we've made on the internet is by intertwining everybody's real life on the internet that does make everything more personal you know if somebody's saying i hate your you know contributions to this project it is personal if that's a real human being you know representing themselves in that work and to be honest i don't want to say that nobody should make themselves part of their project to be honest i'm not anonymous when it comes to the liberal solutions network you know i have my photo i have my name there and part of it is because i like to defend anonymity without being anonymous i do think that is important mm. but the other side of the equation though is that how do we mediate these real life social harms that i will admit there are real life social harms that come from online activity i just think the tight intertwined you know, reality that we have our real life identities intertwined with online ones does increase some risks. I think some of the risks are overblown by the media or by political factions or whatever the issues are, but there are concerns to be concerned about. It's just such a shame that politically these are very useful things to weaponize. Because to be honest, you know, when you've got a certain political faction, if they have a monopoly on, you know, open source software across the board, you know, even corporations admit that open source software is better and more efficient. So really, fundamentally, if you can lock out your political enemies from open source, you've got a heck of an advantage, just the same way if you lock them out of education or institutions or, you know, the economy, all kinds of different things. And so I would love to see a greater commitment to saying we're not going to do that to people because we do believe people of all walks of life, of all faiths, of all political persuasions have a certain level of human rights. Now, that's me being on my soapbox, but I think it is very difficult because things are so tense politically in general right now yeah for sure i think i think one of the biggest changes that we can make socially is number one you know separating the internet from the real world i think a lot like we've gotten to the point where you know the average twitter sjw is that you know in the real world and on the internet and it reminds me of this quote I think it was on a web, web, website called Low What, and it's, the internet is serious business, you know, in a sarcastic tone, where, you know, the internet isn't really necessarily something that you should be, you know, constantly worried about and should be fretting over. But again, we've gotten to this point where you want a job, you need a LinkedIn, you want social credit, you need a Twitter, 
you know, and me being a person who hasn't been involved in any of that, and who's been getting along just fine, I feel like it's more of a social pressure than an actual real-world pressure, because I haven't had a LinkedIn, and I've been able to get work just fine for, for even, you know, companies and places that you would think you would need, you know, have, having a LinkedIn would benefit. But again, I think it's more of a social pressure than an actual real pressure. I think we need to realize and maybe even take ourselves back and realize maybe this isn't such a great idea to invest all of our time, effort, money, and, you know, social status into. Because I don't think, you know, uh, dunking the libs on Twitter or dunking the libs on insert social media, you know, just to, you know, rephrase the saying, is going to bring anything of benefit. Well, and this is where I would caution people against being too aggressive. Like, yes, I take the bait too sometimes, and it is important to be careful. But, you know, no matter where things go, I fully anticipate the web to never forget in perpetuity. And so I would just caution people that how do you want to be remembered for all time? Yeah, and obviously there are going to be people who will never think great of you and, oh, well. But, you know, the general body of people that you interact with, you know, that's who is going to remember you the most. Because there's going to be people on the fringe edges that are going to hate you and, you know, really hate you. But then you're going to, you know, they're going to find some other bait that's bigger and more shiny than yours. And you'll eventually be, you know, on the sidelines or forgotten. But, you know, that general surrounding of people that you're at is really going to be determines you know whether people think great of you or whether people do not think great of you i wholeheartedly agree i think it is that's a tough one to get over i mean even i myself feel a very you know huge pressure to want to be liked and you know when you hear somebody doesn't like you it is very tough and very personal and so you know it is a bit of a give and take and it is really important to try to be patient and measured with yourself as well as others. Yeah, for sure. But I think one thing is you shouldn't compromise on, you know, pushing down what are important things to be liked more or to, you know, have a better influence. Because I think what a lot of people are doing now, you know, even in these online spaces, even in these, you know, corporate environments, corporate settings they're discarding like core beliefs or core ideals just because of some pressure i think that's even happening now with the free software movement there aren't as many you know radically interested people or radically invested people because then they realize oh there's a roadblock okay i'm actually not as much of a free software jihadist as i usually am yeah, I mean, I think part of that does have to do with, you know, not only the broader social, but even economic points right now, where if people are really struggling, it gets really easy to be able to like, well, well, heck, my values, they don't pay the bills. You know, it's the kind yeah. of thing that I do think there is an aspect of desperation to this. But I do think the 
inflammation, you know, inflammation of people, you know, starting to really detest each other over, you know, they don't even know that person. They just see them as an avatar of things they don't like in society or whatever. And that, that itself is a huge problem. And it's, it's, it's really no political side has a monopoly or is exempt from that problem. I see it everywhere. And it is really quite tragic. And honestly, nobody's truly above it. Let's be honest. We are all human yeah. beings in yeah. this system. Nobody is without sin. It's, it's, it's a serious problem. Though, any little bit you can to pull away from it, or at least not build into it, I think is important. Because, you know, for instance, Al Fetty does have a pretty, uh, you know, tough reputation for being rough and tumble. And I don't think it's undeserved. It's just a challenge where it's like, if you're somebody who isn't entirely okay with all the insane censorship that's out there, you're kind of stuck there unless, you know, we all spend our time to actually build it out to be, you know, the place to be. And I actually do really enjoy being on the Fediverse, but I would love to see more excellent people bringing their, you know, content perspective, their, you know, networks even there, because I feel like a lot of people are just getting sucked up into what Elon Musk is doing. You know, they really want to believe, oh, wow, Elon Musk has saved free speech on Twitter. And honestly, it makes me sick every time I see someone thank Elon Musk, because I'm like, I can't believe being... And I'm, I'm going to be hard here. Honestly, this servile for somebody who has really provided you so little. Yeah, I mean, Musk has done essentially nothing for Twitter other than driving it into the ground and milking it for every last bit of cash that he can get out of it. I mean, as X, he wants to make it into some great platform. But if we're all honest, Twitter peaked years ago and it's never going to pass that peak again. Well, I worry, and I'm going to use the PSYOP word here, but it's like I'm worried that the PSYOP at play here is that Twitter was really influential. It was really important at a certain point in time. Oh, and yeah, I for sure. What's going on is that people are being tricked into thinking that Twitter is still that important, which clearly it's not. Because even before the Musk purchase, there was the stat out there that like, you know, not even a majority of Americans use or pay attention to Twitter, which means you're in an echo chamber by default. And what makes the Fediverse different, in my opinion, is that when you set up your own instance or you're in a you know relatively independent one, what ends up happening is anybody, anybody in the world can set up theirs and follow you. And another person can't actually veto that as long as the Internet actually stays relatively yeah. free and uncensored. Now, that's a whole other topic for a different podcast. But my point fundamentally is, is that this permissionless, you know, way of interacting with communities that do want to share and cooperate with is such a huge game changer that you don't get on Twitter. Because on Twitter, Elon Musk decides the rules. And even if he's playing nice with you now, there is no guarantee that the next time something big happens, and maybe it's something you care a lot about, he changes the rules on you really quick. Yeah. And I mean, the Fetty is essentially you, you play by your rules, you federate with who you want to, you interact with who you want to. And you know, there's a bit of nuance that some people may not approve of that and they'll block you off. But, you know, if there's people blocking you off to begin with, what value was there to begin with in interacting with them? And I think that's where a lot of this more independently run social networks is starting to become more popular because every platform just keeps becoming worse. And I mean, for me, I'm experiencing it firsthand. I, I've been using Discord since essentially it came out back in, you know, 
late 2015, although I was probably there early 2016. But nonetheless, the platform has completely soured since, oh, I want to say late 2018, early 2019, especially when, you know, they started getting trades from Tencent and Tencent gained a lot of ownership on their stocks. And thus they started going down this very safe, but also very uninteresting route of where it is now, where essentially it is really, again, a political echo chamber. And I think a lot of people are getting very sick of this and they want to find freedom from it. Yeah, and freedom cuts both ways. You know, when you actually are on something different, you are going to face different challenges. And that includes building up your own community from scratch, whether it's by following certain people or even having to look for other people to follow. You know, for yeah. instance, I run my own peer tube, but that's something I, you know, it's, it really flatters me when I get a new notification that somebody has followed my peer tube instance, but I also try to follow other peer tube instances as well to get a connection there. And I think PeerTube itself, you know, everything we've said about decentralized social media is even more important when it comes to PeerTube because, you know, YouTube was such a huge, you know, fixture of people's cultural understanding of the world. A lot of people used to be that way today. Oh, yeah. You know, you know, in a lot of places, it's like you're either on YouTube or you don't exist for the most part. You know, yeah, there's TikTok now, but that's just another big tech site. Let's be honest. And I think PeerTube presents a very real and very powerful opportunity to democratize all kinds of information dissemination, creativity, and projects. You know, now, if a couple of people want to get together and make a cartoon, whether they animate it or 3D animate it, you know, however they do it, now there is a platform ready-made where they can, you know, just put it out there and collect donations. And I think as far as, like, the big picture, like, I think what the people in, you know, Elon Musk's level are terrified of is I don't think they're afraid of the Fetty itself. I think they're afraid of regular people disconnecting from the big media, whether it's Disney, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's, you know, Spotify or the streaming services. If people actually start funding culture directly and artists directly and people creating things themselves, suddenly the people get to decide what they want to, you know, interact with. It's not even just consuming anymore. It gets to be a two-way conversation in all forms of media. And that's something that honestly, the people who like benefit off, you know, discourse being controlled cannot tolerate that. And that's why I think it is so critical to take the most out of this opportunity while we still have it. And while, like you say, it's really easier than ever to self-host. It's really easier than ever to participate with these systems. And you can start small. You can just create an account. You can just, you know, join an already established community while you learn the ropes. It's really a phenomenal opportunity. And it's really just getting started. I don't think this is something that will fizzle out. I think this is something people are going to fight really hard for once they realize the actual opportunity that's on the table. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, that was a great summary of what we've talked about. I think there's a lot of opportunity that people have to break away from these big tech necks to actually invest in their own growth, in the growth of their community around them, and the growth of these software projects that provide all of this freedom. And I think now is the perfect time to start investing your time, your effort, and you know your attention to these projects, because they are legitimately wonderful pieces of software that do things in ways that people you know would greatly benefit from. And I think 
you know, to listeners and to people who, you know, actually care about this stuff. This is where you start. This is where you want to put your effort. This is where you want to make steps into, you know, freeing yourself from the big tech next, but also to foster growth in these places where there needs to be growth if people really want to start adopting. Yeah, and uh, thank you for this. I'm really excited for this podcast, and I think we're going to be able to touch on so many of these exciting developments and honestly, ideas and projects that are really just beyond the code on the hard drives or running in the ether, so to speak. You know, these are real living systems that we all get to be a part of. And it really is nice when you get to contribute and be a part of it, which is why I am so thrilled to be a part of this. And I thank you for having me on. Yeah, for sure. And I think with that, we'll come up to a bit of a break collect our thoughts for the next bit of discussion. Alrighty, and we're back. Um, so, as kind of, I guess, rolling in from our previous discussion of freeing yourself and freeing your community from these, uh, from the technocracy, more of a rhetorical and, uh, I guess an application of the means. What, what do, what is the effect of these free software suites, tools, um, whatever you want to call them in our own personal lives? Um, so actually, since Gabe, you're the one who's the biggest advocate for that, I thought it would be interesting for you to start out with that. Yeah, so I first started playing around with, you know, Linux-based distributions by setting up a virtual machine, playing around with it. Uh, eventually, the performance trade-offs felt too aggravating at the time. So eventually, I'm like, screw it, I'm just going to wipe it all, I'm going to, you know, daily drive it. And that was a very harsh, uh, you know, induction into it where I'm like, I'm going to do it. it, it doesn't matter if I get, if I don't know how to do a thing, I'm going to have to learn. And that's where it helps to have multiple devices. You know, you can look up the answers on your phone. If you're having trouble on a computer, you know, it is definitely convenient to not be locked into a single sy system and not know what to do with it. And so what I started out with, I started with a very typical experience. You get a Linux distribution, you know, people generally recommend Ubuntu, and then you'll hop around to kind of find your home. And I noticed that after a while of doing it, you kind of start to realize that they're all kind of the same thing with slightly different, you know, variations. Do you want a stable release? Do you want rolling releases, like getting your packages right away, or when they're ready, you know, or do you want, you know, one desktop environment versus another? And I actually think you know, I'm seriously considering writing some kind of introduction to here's how you get started. And I think explaining some of that stuff to people at the get go can probably save them some distro hopping time. If you explain, this is what KDE looks like. This is what GNOME looks like. This is what XFCE looks like. Here's the different distributions. You know, that's probably even more important now to do that than before, because, you know, now there's Wayland, there's System D, which people may or may not actually care about whether those are in their systems, but it's nice to just kind of explain that up front. And so eventually I realized I loved how customizable KDE is. You know, I liked being able to set a dark mode and change all the icons and change all the different things. Like that was something that I thought was really gratifying. It's like, wow, I can personalize this without knowing anything. You know, many 
really complicated ways of customizing your distribution. Maybe, oh, here are all these config files. You have to learn all this. But KDE makes it pretty simple out of the box. And I love that. Whereas GNOME kind of felt like, oh, they made every program look the same. <laughs> Was this kind of my, <laughs> my response to feeling like, no, not, not that I'm knocking it, honestly. Uh, I will say GNOME is probably great for starting out because I found GNOME Discs was a lifesaver in many scenarios. Yeah. I think there are some features it has. Like these are great, powerful tools. And once I got really settled in where I got past the distro hopping and the what does it look like and is it good enough, that's when you start being like, well, I should probably learn how to use the command line. Using the command line is a little intimidating, you know, the bash shell and there are many other shells you can use. But the thing is, is that if you're new to computers, it's not immediately obvious to you that you can do honestly just as much, if not more, through the terminal by typing out commands. And typing commands has some amazing advantages by pressing the up arrow to go back. You have the, you know, you do exclamation point twice and you can repeat a command. Like, you know, imagine if you were clicking around doing buttons and you could go back in time. It's literally that powerful. And so, I think it is one of the more underrated tools because people kind of ask, how do I avoid it? How do I avoid it? And to be honest, I do think that it should be, you know, convenient to change your settings without having to go in there. I think there's a lot of reasons why people don't want to have to do that. But I still think understanding the basics of running certain programs can really go a long way, especially because recently I've started getting to the point where I am writing scripts that call other scripts I've written. And I feel like once you get to that point, it's like, wow, you really feel like a computer wizard then. You know, you learn how uh, to loop shell scripts and make them do fancy stuff. It's It really opens up the possibilities. And the other thing I want to say is when you're using, you know, free software as a preference, you know, maybe not a hard line, you know, decision, but at least as a preference, it allows you to adopt offline first workflows. You get to actually, instead of having to ask a server permission, oh, hey, can I start a text document? Hey, can I start working with stuff? You just do it. And then you can decide whether you want to put it offline, up up online or what you want to do with it. And that has changed my workflow substantially, you know, as somebody who, you know, in my teenage years was definitely fully sucked into big tech. You know, I was doing the Google documents. I was doing, you know, the other stuff because it was, you know, cheap and accessible. But I feel like the free software community has done an amazing job, honestly, from the beginning for making the tools just as accessible. And it's such an amazing opportunity. And honestly, I would never go back. You know, every time I'm forced to interact with one of these systems, it's like culture shock. I can't, you know, really understand why people tolerate it. But, you know, I did, other people did, and people still do. Yeah. And it's so, I think it's so important, at least for no other reason, to think, hey, it's possible to do an offline first workflow instead of constantly being synced to the cloud. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I'll, I'll throw, I'll, I'll interject in here and kind of stay where I started. So, oh, I'm, I'm not nearly as attuned and involved in the history of Linux, but, I started, like, I've, I've known of its existence for many years on end, but I only really recently got fully involved in it. I think it was back in, oh, some like, something like early 2021. I got into the whole meme of ricing your desktop. You know, pick a window manager, pick a, you know, compositor, pick all your bits and pieces and make it look great. Um, so I ended up taking an old discarded Asus laptop, and I threw void on that. And I I did quite a bit of ricing. I did um, 
BSPWM, which I still have all the configurations for that, and that's actually a pretty nice setup that I ended up doing there. And I just ended up, you know, messing around with the various stuff for desktop to make it look cool and whatnot. And eventually, I got I got more involved in programming, and I think I was picking up Go for the first time in, like, I want to say mid-2021. And I had issues with that and so on and so forth. And then I ended up just making the full switch to Arnix. And um, that was partially because being... I had touched Ubuntu before, but only like, oh, boot it up for five seconds in the virtual machine and then turn it off. So nothing, you know, serious. But I was very familiar with how Void worked and its in its system. So I ended up running a run it Arctic system just because that's what I knew how to use. And I ended up, you know, switching to Arch at one point, but then going back to Arctic run it because I just liked it better. So I ended up getting a lot of value out of switching to Linux as a part of becoming more involved in the world of developers and software development because right now I currently am a software developer and a lot of the experience and skills I've gained with daily driving a Linux system has made it so that I actually can write really good software for a lot of production systems because, you know, Linux runs on production systems, but also in that I have these amazing set of tools that I can do tons of really cool stuff with. Um, my editor, for instance, is pretty much kitted out exactly to how I work with code. I have, you know, everything in the way I want it. It's very simple. It's, you know, not a crazy uncontrollable mess of an editor like VS Code which I'm going to be honest, I don't really like that editor at all well. Um, as well as I can now generate projects, I can generate different bits of code, I have ways of keeping up on, you know, documenting stuff that I write. And so overall, there's just this beautiful suite of tools that makes working with all that so convenient. And as well, this is also bled into my personal life as well. Um, in school, writing was kind of a big thing, at least for me. And I ended up, you know, using Word like everyone else. Then I switched to, uh, what was it, uh, LibreOffice. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. Um, free software, am I right? But then I ended up figuring out about tech and law tech. And that has essentially been the most important tool that has existed in my life ever since. I've been using it for like three years now. I've pretty much written anything that requires, you know, a document in it. I generate a lot of, you know, documents from, you know, say from like timesheets to reports about stuff to even keeping <laughs> keeping track of my own life. Sometimes I'll, you know, generate law tech documents, print them out, slap them up on the wall of like, here, here's a, you know, weekly to-do list or stuff like that. It's become something that is know super important in my life as well as just the shell in general like you said you know you feel like an absolute wizard when you understand the shell and i've done some really crazy esoteric things with my shell that are a part of my everyday workflow so 
overall, I've, I've reaped a ton of benefits. I've saved so much time with all of these tools, and I don't think I would be able to exist as I am now without it. What I find fascinating about this, though, is that I think there is no one perfect setup. Like, I think the ideal, you know, perfect free software distribution would involve the tools that help people make things more their own, you know, and a lot of them do do a great job at this. And to be honest, many are just simply flexible enough that it's not even an issue. You know, I got a Pop! OS, uh, you know, System76 laptop, and it came with a GNOME system and i'm like well can i switch to kde and it's well it's linux of course you can so i switched it to kde and it's like it's kind of really amazing how much you have way more control than you would initially think you know even if you're on ubuntu and you want to change things you kind of can just swap out components as long as the packages exist and it's really amazing to have the option to make it more your own. And one of the things that fascinates me about this is when I first started getting into Linux, I was kind of getting the impression, kind of like where you're at right now, where as far as I'm able to tell, you're very, you know, you're a very advanced Emacs user and you actually can use it sufficiently well. And I was kind of worried that I would have to get to that point to get any benefit out of the system. But that's not true at all. I'm still like a mouse clicker, you know, KDE user who doesn't really touch the terminal unless I need to use a script or need to use a command line uh, utility. And, you know, I find it fascinating that you can still get many, if not most of the benefits of using free software because there is so much excellent software out there that you can use, whether it's LibreOffice. You know, I am probably Blender's number one fan, or at least I try to be, because, you know, I first heard about Blender when I was uh, very young. You know, I got it on a CD when you would still get software on CDs, and, you know, I tried it out. And I was too young to even understand what it was. I couldn't, like, what it was couldn't fit in my brain at the time. So I kind of, like, had it on the back burner, but I revisited it. I'm like, wow, that's what Blender is? I can't believe you could do all with that. And so, like, honestly, ever since then, it's been my favorite free software project because it's really come a long way. It's probably grown more than I have in this time, uh, which is, you know, crazy to think about. And I love what the free software you know, idea really represents is that like people can come together and make something that's so much bigger than any one of us. And you can contribute in all kinds of ways. You know, you don't have to be the software developer to be a useful part of that project. You know, there are a lot of people documenting how things work. You know, a lot of people just trying it out and saying, hey, I found this bug. And oddly enough, there was this screenshot going around where somebody on Reddit was explaining that although adding Linux support to your project doesn't add a whole lot of users, you get so much better feedback because Linux users are, on average, more likely to troubleshoot this kind of stuff and give useful feedback. And so I think it allows you to be part of a phenomenal community of people actually making things that are going to help so many people in so many ways, kind of like what we said earlier about how you know this really can be for everyone, and that is so exciting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think Blender is a great example. That's, that has to be like the gem of open, so, uh, not open source, free software. Um, it is an absolutely wonderful tool to use. I've used it quite a bit. I've learned about, you know, shader programming and 3D modeling, and I've actually used it quite a bit. Um, it's an absolutely phenomenal piece of software, and I can only, uh, I can't wait to see where it goes in the future. But again, you know, 
every, each person's system, you know, each Windows system or each Mac system is, you know, that system. But what's different about, you know, Linux and BSDs even is that each system is tuned to each person's preferences. So, you know, you have a system that works exactly the way you want it and, you know, is predictable. You have all the tools that you want on it and you work in the way that you work. You aren't, you know, restricted to a particular workflow of how you want things to work. Because, you know, I, I live and breathe the terminal. I'm not going to lie. I would not be alive today without it. But, you know, I can still work without it. But that's going to be, you know, vastly different from someone else's setup, like yours, for instance, where, you know, you use the, the GUI a lot and you use KDE Plasma, whereas I'm, you know, running awesome window manager with like a 4K line configuration. You know, no sane person does that, but, you know, <laughs> it's my system and I run it. So it's, it's the amount of freedom and choice that you have truly is one of the best advantages of it. Yeah, and one of the things I find really kind of fascinating when it comes to the whole big picture of the project where it's like, I think that first hurdle is just people learning, oh yeah, I can install a new system on my machine. You know, if somebody's stuck on Windows, they don't really realize how easy it is to have something so phenomenally different. And as far as I'm concerned, once you've got Linux on that machine running, you have already done the hard part. Like, regardless of, you know, where you go from there, yeah, there may be some troubleshooting involved if you're trying to do something, you know, novel or unsupported or anything like that. But it really has come a phenomenal way. You know, when I was first starting trying out things in virtual machines, you know, a lot of the basic stuff you try doing, because the first thing you try after you install Ubuntu is you try to get NextCloud running, which, you know, at least when I was trying it, I was not as... <laughs> Uh, adept enough at getting that running. But now there are so many tools like, you know, Docker for all its uh, issues. You know, Docker is amazing at getting started with these kind of things because you just write this small little recipe. It pulls down the stuff and you add a few variables. And that's a little more advanced. Like once you understand how to use the terminal, that's when you'd want to start getting into it. But it's way easier than what would have had to be done before because it's like your process before then is you have to find it. You have to figure out how to install it for your particular system. Sometimes that involved adding a custom, you know, re repository. And then once you've done that, you've installed it. Now you've got to configure it and then you hit run. You make sure it's running as a service. And those steps are not like super complicated or anything, but it is a bit of work. It can take, you know, 20 minutes depending on what uh, you're working on and how long it takes to download and whatnot. But now, I'll admit with Docker, it's pretty easy. You can just go to a Git repository. They have the Docker, you know, compose file there. You pull down Docker, it pulls down the image and you have a very quick way to start something once you're familiar with that. And as I mentioned before, now there are tools, whether it's, you know, host or now there's a mini TP. I forget exactly how it's pronounced. Somebody was writing a blog post about it, but there are now way more tools built on top of Docker that make it even easier for people to host their own services on a home server. And I think that's where the difference between, you know, say open source and free software may start to matter because, you know, I am kind of seeing these proprietary home server offerings and sometimes they overlap with the cryptocurrency space, but not so much. And I worry a little bit that people may get the right message, which is, oh, I need to run a home server, but they don't get the entire message, which is free software also matters, even if you know, it's not a home server. Yeah, exactly. And I think, again, also, you know, with running Linux, you're already thrust into that environment. So, you know, when 
you know, the natural evolution is, you know, you've been running Linux for a bit and you're like, okay, I want to self-host. You're like, oh my gosh, this is literally what I've been doing on the system. This is pretty darn easy, or at least, you know, that's what the experience was for me. Because after I'd been running the system, you know, I remember back when I was first starting self-hosting and I set up a VPN. I think it was running OpenVPN on like a CentOS box. Um, I didn't really have a whole lot of an idea of what I was doing. But, you know, now I'm running a WireGuard node. I'm running an entire mail server stack. I'm running Jellyfin. I'm running Pleroma. I'm running a ton of different stuff. I'm running my own Git server. I'm running my own tools for actually, you know, uh, build, build pipelines and all that kind of stuff. Um, it really just compounds on what you learn from just running a daily driver Linux system. And, you know, anyone who is decently involved in computers, I would highly encourage to take the leap and daily drive a Linux system, even if, you know, it's not your primary system. Just run it on real hardware and do real world stuff with it. And you will be amazed at how good it is for a lot of things. Yeah, and again, to really sing more of Blender's praises, you know, it's a software you can do 2D animation, 3D animation, rigging, 3D modeling. You can do scripting and simulations. Like, there's, there's, it feels like there's no limit for to what it can do. And oddly enough, it is my go-to video editor these days because I there are other free software video editors, but it's just I'm so comfortable with Blender that the fact that it allows it to be done feels like, oh, why would I need to switch? You know, and uh, you know. I love how configurable it is, and many of these free software programs are either more configurable or what I think is almost a more important concept, which is kind of alien to people who are used to using, you know, cloud services, which is there's this thing called the Unix philosophy, where some of these programs will do a single thing and do it well. And I think this concept is underutilized in general these days, where now it's like if you look, oh, how do I make a website? Okay, down like a couple of megabytes of JavaScript and write hello world. Like it's absolutely a shame. Whereas, you know, there are some really efficient tools. And this is where it overlaps with a bit of terminal use. Because with the terminal, you can tell it to look at these files and do this thing. And it does that one thing to those files. And then when you're writing scripts with those tools, you are building a, you know, procedure out of those things that allows for way more complex behavior than what you would get from, again, just clicking around or using buttons or doing those things. And I think this is why people feel almost held back by regular user interfaces, because it is very difficult to build a user interface that embodies the same level of complexity that isn't also a horrible eyesore. Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of what separates the, you know, Linux in its current state, Linux, BSDs, you know, all the derivative Unix-like OSs from the more traditional, I guess the word would be normie OSs, is that they do have that level of advanced usage that a lot of these other systems don't have. Or, you know, in the case of the window Windows, they're hidden behind so many different, you know, barriers that it's, you know, realistically hard for a user to get involved in. Whereas, you know, with a Linux system, you want to automate something with a script, boom, script, throw it on a cron job, throw it on the system D timer, throw it on a service, boom, you have it fully automated. Do, are you, you know, doing one thing over and over and over again, make a script, you know, I think a lot of the advantage of a Linux system is it's very programmable interface with the shell being, you know, the one, you know, the, 
the most lowest to the system. Lowest to the system where the user can interact with a system. So, you know, it's, you know, the closest to the system as far as a user interface is concerned, but it works in a, you know, very computer way so that, you know, the user can still understand what's going on, but it's also, you know, easily interpretable for the computer itself. One of the things I found fascinating that's kind of related to this is that, you know, there's this big fight over, you know, people will say, oh, I left Windows to use Linux so that I don't get any viruses. And that's kind of a, you know, dangerous mindset to have. Because you have all the same cybersecurity risks, no matter what system you're running. If you are mm -hmm. pulling code from unknown places, whether it's websites, whether it's strange email links or whatever, you have all the same risks. However, the probability you run into them does change with your behavior. For instance, every major Linux distribution will have their own packages. Is it possible that those packages could be, you know, infected with something bad? Absolutely. But it's so incredibly unlikely. So I would say it's, you know, these are vetted packages depending on which distribution you use. So you have a high sense of security, just like in the same way that while, you know, Microsoft might have its own issues, but you're probably not going to get a virus from a Windows update itself. Now, maybe the way Windows Update works can be, you know, manipulated, whatever. But my point fundamentally is, is that I think one of the challenges that people have when people will go to Linux, say, to be more secure, and then they get there and they're like, oh my goodness, why am I not more secure? It's like, well, I would argue most of your security as a regular desktop user has way more to do with your behavior than the system you're running. Because, for instance, in Linux, one of the things you'll see very often is some projects will be like, oh, just download our script and run it into your shell. It'll be, we'll get, you know, some address and pipe it into sudo bash. And what that is is saying, oh, run this random script on the internet as administrator. And that's, you know, admittedly crazy advice. You know, really no project yeah. should do that. I understand why it's done in many instances, but the thing is, is ideally there are better options. And this, I think, partially exists because on some systems, you know, the repositories aren't, it's not easy for a developer to add, you know, their package to that repository. Either the maintainers have some kind of like they wanted that, which is fine. You know, it's their project. You know, that's perfectly legitimate. So then there are ways around that. And that creates these other parts of the free software experience where you have your main software packages, which is where you probably pull software from first. But now there are these other options like flat packs and app images and snaps that are all different ways of getting what is often the same software. You can get Blender through your packages, through, you know, snaps, through flat packs and through many other different ways of getting software or you can even compile it yourself which is one of the main advantages of going to linux as many people who do want to compile their own software will probably move in that direction anyways yeah and as well i think i think a lot of i'm gonna say our bad reasons for using linux probably is privacy and security because those two things aren't really eliminated when you're running a different system because you know on a linux system you can still interact with google you can still use the google chrome browser yes you can um it's a pain to get set up but yes you can use google chrome on a linux system you can also you know install viruses or you know run malicious code like you said on your system so i think those two reasons are 
those two regions seem to be a lot of the driving force for a lot of new users, but then they're not deep enough reasons to actually get people to stay because they're everything else is so unfamiliar. And really, you know, when if you're trying to avoid big tech and you're trying to avoid all this stuff, why not you just have no computer? I mean, that's an extreme case, but you know, it drives the point. I think a lot of people should come to Linux for the tools that it has and for the stuff that it has, because, you know, the privacy and security is a side benefit, but it's never really the one reason why I would say any competent user is going to be using that system. Well, I would say privacy and security is downstream of the advantages you get once you start yeah. actually exercising your autonomy, because once you're at you know, regardless whether you're desktop or terminal user, regardless of how you do it, once you're comfortable with these tools enough, you know what you're doing. You're using the system and you see, you know, there's this new program you want and you're thinking about how, where you're getting it from. You know, this is something that maybe on Windows is more, you know, taken for granted because on Windows you can just download an EXE and run it. Now, there are similar things on Linux. You know, you can't just download an app image and run it, which is actually where I think when it comes to security, we're probably going to see, especially as a trend moving forward, we're going to see more containerization and virtualization used to protect the user, which I think is better than simply telling users they can't do things, which is kind of the default way of handling that problem. And so, for instance, speaking of a containerized way of handling those things, the WayDroid is a project that lets you run Android, an Android system, but more importantly, it's apps on your you know linux desktop and i've tried it out a few times and it uses containerized systems to make that happen and what's fascinating about this is that this means you can actually use that android system and you know say you have a problem with it you can just remove it now yes there are advanced ways for malware to you know break free from a virtualized system or even a containerized one but it's still an extra layer that can probably help most people you know if you have a system for you know a friend or you know a family member Maybe just having it boot straight into WayDroid can give them most of what they want because you can still use a keyboard, you can still use the mouse, you can still do all these fancy things, but you're in a more, you know, locked down, but more importantly, more protected environment that maybe for some people may be the way forward. But I'm finding it fascinating when it comes to Linux containers through LXD, which you introduced me to, is that you can do this with entire OSs. You know, uh, Cubes OS was a way for you to create virtual machines for certain purposes. And I wonder if they were just ahead of their time and that that is the direction everything's going to go in where it's like, sorry, just like you use different browsers for different things, people are going to start using different OSs for different software. Yeah. And you could maybe even see it as, you know, return to the, you know, return to tradition where, you know, all software in the 90s was a boot disk to an OS, but now instead every OS is a boot disk to another OS. So it's crazy to think about, but I think there's a lot of really cool stuff that pops out. But I think we also need to be very aware and very uh, vigilant about these changes because for one, you know, running containers in OS virtualization, you know, that requires an OS to begin with. And maybe if we're writing software that can only be run in containers or only works, you know, reasonably well within a container, are we making good software or are we making software that's set up to fail if, you know, the virtualization environment or the containerization environment fails itself? 
Are we building software that is, you know, dependent on the platform, the platform being a container or a virtual machine or some weird mix of the two? Yeah, and I think as far as nefarious trends go, there is definitely a huge desire to, you know, people act like smartphones are the worst it can get. But I actually think a smartphone at least still lets you do have some amount of control over what you're doing. Whereas, you know, with some of the technologies that are coming down the pipe, you know, with Wasm, there can be an environment where you're only allowed to use, you know, what is effectively a web browser or some proxy for one that lets you only run code that is in the cloud. And, you know, it's, it's actually kind of scary, but, you know, there was a prediction by Terry Davis uh, a while back where he's like, oh, they're going to put all the code in the cl cloud with a compiler under lock and key. And I actually don't think that vision is so unthinkable, you know, especially with some of the national security, you know, structures really pushing for, you know, trustless infrastructure. And part of that infrastructure involves not trusting the user. And maybe you shouldn't trust users, but I think as the demands for you know, national security over cyber escalate, it's going to be harder and harder for people to reaffirm their, honestly, in my opinion, right to actual autonomous computing and autonomous general purpose computing. And this overlaps a lot with the discussion on AI. There's been so much hype over the last year and a half over what, you know, amazing AI generators can do to create all kinds of content. But the thing is, is the, the big push to regulate it because it's, oh, it's so powerful. There's this cult around AGI. I am very concerned that this is all going to be used as a pretext to go after people's ability to compute on their own terms because the scaremongering pretext is just, oh, computing itself is dangerous, so we need to keep it out of people's hands. But you'll still be able to watch Netflix over a glorified browser. You'll still be able to do, you know, Office 365. It's like, it'll all be cloud-based if we let it. Yeah, yeah. I think there's definitely route for that to happen. And I think for one, a lot of, a lot of these issues that we can have, you know, with security or, you know, like cybersecurity in of itself is mostly caused by the internet and people, you know, not being vigilant about, oh, hey, networks of systems, maybe we should build, you know, systems that don't have a whole lot of holes to punch in the first place. But I think definitely, yes, there is a push to control and to have a tighter grasp on computing because it is like these are tools that, you know, we have the same systems that the government has. We have the same systems that other countries have. You know, nobody is particularly at more advantage than another when we have all of these systems that run essentially all the same software on essentially all the same hardware. I mean, I do speculate that there are some interesting software suites, you know, behind intelligence agencies or certain government departments because like to be honest one of the things we've seen is you know there are all these dashboards used for all kinds of purposes and i even worked in like physical like security guard security where i had access mm. to a software suite where when somebody say clocked in with a badge you could see a photo of their face and this technology is really only getting better and better. I do think the technology to monitor and surveil people in the real world is escalating to the point where this 
whole fight between liberty in cyberspace and liberty in the real world are really meshing together. I actually don't see much of a difference between the two these days when we've had this situation where as people's real lives started to intermesh with their digital lives, the digital life started to creep in on real life. And, you know, there are so many different aspects of this, but one of them is, you know, the tech billionaires have have a lot of, you know, flack recently. And I think it's deserved in some ways where, you know, you get a company like Uber. All Uber was was an illegal taxi company that monopolized the market and added surveillance. That's really all it was. Yeah. You know? um, and it's, it's really tragic in a way where we've had all this consolidation happen and all it has really done is favor more surveillance, more control. And we really do need to do more to combat it. And there's really only so much that can be done. You know, you can defund certain government initiatives, but this is going to sound a little, you know, hyperbolic, but you know, when you get to a point where an entire city is built by a corporation and they invite people to work on their property, suddenly you don't have citizens with rights and, you know, even protections. It's like this, these are visitors on corporate property. And if we're not careful, I do think a lot of the different big picture stuff going on is involved in dispossessing people enough that they will not have digital or physical autonomy. So I don't think it's a, it's a good idea for people to neglect, oh, the tech stuff is just, you know, whatever, we can all, you know, shut it off and forget about it. Because it's very often what is being weaponized to accomplish many of these goals, which is actually what motivated exactly. me to start my mission. Like I mentioned, we've mentioned before how I've written a series called Tools of the Technocracy, where all I wanted to do with that series was point out, here's the symphony of all the crazy technocratic control structures that exist now. Not like, oh, 10 years from now, not, oh, if anything happens, like, here are things that are going on now that if applied in a weaponized way are honestly quite staggering and terrifying. And I think it's tough because people don't want to believe in, you know, a certain level of maliciousness. It's, well, it's not good if it happens by accident either. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think the best way that we can start to make a move towards, you know, more autonomy and more dependence from these systems is, you know, simply just decoupling from these big tech networks, these big tech tools, these big tech systems, hardware and whatnot, and run it on our own. And even then, you know, that's, that's considering the best case scenario of, you know, if we all just dropped Microsoft, Google, whatever, today, all of those companies would collapse, like, outright, because all of their profit, all of their monetary gain comes from users actually using those systems. You know, if everyone started getting onto the boat and got Lineage OS phones in droves, then we would probably have less of, you know, Apple would have less control over the smartphone market, Google would have less control of the smartphone market. And in general, there would probably be a massive shift in how computing is handled and is gone about in the mobile space permanently. I think also we can take that, you know, by extension to our com computer systems and our personal lives. The more we decouple from these big tech, these proprietary and, you know, tools designed to make money rather than to make users. I think if we can decouple from that, we can change computing for the better. I, I wholeheartedly agree. And that's why one of the 
things I published near the end of the year was Operation Bankroll, where I really wanted to just kind of remind people you can fund developers on many excellent open source projects directly. One of the ones I put at the top of my list on LibrePay, which is a platform where you can support many of these projects directly, I pointed to FreeCAD. FreeCAD is something I tried out. It's an amazing software suite for 3D parametric modeling, whereas, you know, Blender uses vertices. With FreeCAD, you can design, you know, millimeter and submillimeter accurate parts. And as somebody who has a 3D printer, it was amazing to play around with and learn how I could make something. You know, what I tried to do for fun was to make a fully 3D printed bearing. Yeah, it's not like, you know, perfect engineering specs, but it was a neat little tool to make. And you can do actually, you know, physically accurate measurements with very simple procedures. And it's it's phenomenal. And there's no limit to what can be done with FreeCAD and 3D printing together. And that's another thing that worries, you know, people trying to seize control. But it's fascinating to me that people can fund these initiatives directly instead of waiting for some company to come around and make it for them. And I think we're at a very unique point in time where, you know, with interest rates rising, you know, I would argue voting with your dollar matters more now than it may have in the last, you know, 12 years where big tech and lower, you know, debt based funding was kind of sloshing around everywhere, not to get into a side uh, economic, economics rant. But the thing is, is that you can support people to, you know, develop excellent software as a charity thing. And this is where I do think it is important to protect the idea that software can be for everyone and it can be a actual social good. Yeah, for sure. And actually, I'd never known about FreeCAD until today. So that that's great. It's, I've been looking for something like it. But again, you know, it's the movement that keeps on giving, you know, it's for the people by the people. I think, yes, definitely, where we put our money, where we put our time, where we put our effort now will greatly affect what happens in the future. I think overall, in recent years, it's gained a lot of traction, because people want software that works. And it is shown time and time again, that it is, in fact, software that works. Yep. And, you know, it really will only get better over time. Because as more things are built, you can learn from things. And it's one of those things where I'm really excited about some of the non-technical features of this. I started a series of interviews on my show called Digital Autonomy and the Arts. I also have another Resilient Living series that I started as well, where I'm trying to really bridge that gap between us, you know, gearheads and other domains of life. And I started with the arts because especially with someone with such a fondness for Blender, I wanted to explore how we could bring free software to people with an entirely different, you know, in this case, artistic passion. And I think it is something that is so underutilized that even in my own series, I had not really done a great job at really highlighting how important it is and how much opportunity there is. It's something I'm really hoping to do more moving forward. But this is where, you know, it's really not just tech. It's where tech can be used to make all the different domains of our life even better. You know, for instance, a lot of people are freaking out about central bank digital currencies and the potential privacy risks and, you know, honestly, autonomy risks related in that. But I think if it wasn't for things like the PayPal mafia, where like in these legislative barriers are put into place, people really underestimate how easy it would be for people to make fully, you know, autonomous 
payment systems because we have the technology. If we can already self-host really complicated chat and federated social networks, nobody can tell me it is an engineering or technological challenge to actually make digital money work and you know protect sovereignty and autonomy. It is simply a structural barrier. It is simply a sociological lack of imagination on behalf of society that we don't have currencies that properly you know embody the fact that we should have a level of sovereignty we should have a level of autonomy beyond the state and i'm excited about where some of this will go because i think some of the reaction has gotten a bunch of people seriously thinking about these problems and it is shame a shame i'm gonna kind of be a bit of a negative nancy here it is a shame that what Bitcoin ended up being was so far from what it was in initially envisioned to be. You know, I was really excited about Bitcoin when it first came onto the scene. I was always kind of an observer. It was never a big investment in, for me until I started playing around with uh, gambling yeah, yeah. on it too much. And that was a problem. <laughs> but, I, you know, for me, I was mostly interested in the technological and like, can this work? And I truthfully, there was the block size wars where Bitcoiners were discussing whether or not they should raise the block size limit to allow more transactions per second and whatnot. And in my opinion, regardless of what side somebody fell on that issue, in my mind, that was the point where Bitcoin kind of never really recovered from because the community was split. And it's just kind of an important lesson about even how seemingly, you know, like something that seems like the biggest deal of the time, you know, you may want to fight to death over may actually not be more important than the project itself. Maybe it is worth setting aside some differences to actually build something that could actually change the world. Yeah, I think, you know, setting aside differences is something that we really do need to learn because, you know, division doesn't bring anything good out of it. If people are divided, if people are constantly bickering with one another, if people are in that mindset where, you know, they're playing favorites and they're not realizing that, you know, we're all people with a pretty similar common goal. And if we can't, you know, put aside the differences that, you know, we have with each other, we may not be able to achieve that goal. And in fact, we may be even able, we, we may be even able to be taken advantage of, which again, right. is probably not something that we want. Oh, and such a good example of this is, you know, when you really want to support something that can make a difference. I donated to the Framisoft organization that's making PeerTube because I'm hosting PeerTube and I'm loving what it's doing so far. I didn't vet every person in the organization. Oh, do they have the same politics of me? Oh, are they, you know, doing this or whatever? It's like, look, they made an amazing project and I'm happy to support it for that. And, you know, it's so important to really put like you said, not just our money, but our attention and our support where we actually want things to go. And when it comes to where tech is, I think it's more interesting to think of we are at a point where so many interesting decisions get to be made in ways that like, honestly, we didn't have time to think about this. When the internet was first getting started, people were more worried about it getting to work rather than how it worked. Now, yes, it would have been nice if we had a more thoughtful approach to every single step along the way. But I feel like now is the perfect time because enough people are questioning all kinds of aspects about the way 
the internet and the web works, but it's also come to such a point that it's not like we have to figure out everything from scratch. We can still use HTML. We can still use, you know, really basic building blocks of all these systems, whether it's the Linux kernel, whether it's different compilers, you know, there is a whole lot of good that can be salvaged, even if you basically do want to start from scratch, which I think would be ill-advised, but it's a possibility. Yeah, you know, but even in the worst case scenario of starting from scratch, you know, we have, what, 20, 30 years of essentially research and development that has happened, and we can learn from that. You know, we know that, oh, this is, you know, this is a system in its prime form, oh, or, hey, HTTP is pretty great. Maybe we shouldn't implement all of this other spaghetti on top. I mean, you know, again, put your time into attention for what's valuable. And I think, again, you know, with how popular it's becoming now and how, you know, Linux and the BSDs and a lot of these other free software projects are growing and are getting attention and how they're becoming more mainstream to the point where Microsoft starts pushing WSL so hard to the point where, oh yeah, it's like a stand-in for Linux. And you know, people are like, but I have my Linux here. I think again, where we put our time, money, attention, and you know, effort into is going to dictate what happens in the future. And, you know, we can start again by, you know, running the system yourself, hosting the system yourself. Or, you know, if you can't host that software, try to find people that host it and ask them if you can use it. Or, you know, if there's a paid service for, you know, PeerTube or something like that, or, you know, maybe some, you know, service that's free, use it. Again, invest your time, invest your effort, invest your attention into these projects and they will succeed. Well, this overlaps perfectly with another thing I think would be hugely remiss if we missed in this podcast, which is the really the indie web that's getting started right now that has been really never went away, but is getting more reinvigorated, especially with a lot of people adopting the Fediverse. I've noticed that when I browse the Fediverse in certain profiles, many people have their own websites that are totally just, you know, self-made artisan creations of their own imagination, sometimes their personal blogs, sometimes they're really fancy and very, very custom. It's all, you know, whatever every individual wants. And to me, this is something that is so powerful. You know, it's even bigger than the idea of the Fediverse, that if more people spend time building their own independent websites that aren't beholden to all these crazy systems, if you're willing to devote time to maintain a website, you know, for as a charity work, as completely a nonprofit, you know, non-commercial venture, what that means is you now have a real platform to disseminate ideas that isn't beholden to every anyone and other people are as well. The nice thing about a website is it is easier to maintain than an entire Fediverse instance. It's also easier to restart if, you know, things aren't the way you like it. You can just tear it all down and start again from scratch. And yeah, it's exactly. not as not involved a project. And I actually really wanted to bring up that, you know, I think hypertext is one of the most underrated advancements in this entire internet project we've had, where hypertext is just the fact that we have text documents that link to various points within themselves and to other documents that have the same attribute. And it gets really easy to get distracted by AI and all these amazing, you know, multimedia advantages. But I'm noticing more and more just the ability to present ideas in an interlinked format and then share those with other 
interlinked formats is such an important advancement and it transcends the networks themselves. You can have an HTTP site that links to a Tor site, that links to an I2P site. This idea of the free and open web, I think, encompasses larger than just the capital I internet. It is something that can probably include private repositories. You know, you have IPFS that's content, you know, and content address space. And there's other alternative ways of doing that. You have magnet links for torrents. There are all kinds of ways of keeping information you know, really indexed and available. And that's such a powerful tool that I think shouldn't go by the wayside. And to build on top of that, another useful innovation in all this that, again, isn't even new is many of these small sites are running RSS feeds. So anybody who has an RSS reader can now pull from all those different resources. And the beautiful thing about this is, again, it's non-commercial. It's not algorithmically modified. So you have a real information dissemination platform on the internet that is not beholden to giant corporate interests, to state interests, to whatever special groups that you know come together. It's individuals and people can join the feeds they like or ag even aggregate them together. There is limitless potential. And I think that itself is one of the way more powerful ways to resist censorship than to fight over, oh, we need to regulate big tech and we need to regulate Facebook. It's like, no, let's just build our own stuff and make the best use of it we can. Yeah, exactly. And again, you know, if, if you know, if the internet gets compromised, we still have a whole, you know, we have TCP, we have UDP, we have all of these, you know, lower level implementations of networking where you know, we can invent an entirely new hypertext protocol. We can invent an, like, you know, Tor and I2P. Of course, you know, they obviously use a lot of this, you know, similar technology, but, you know, the way how we connect to them is different than, you know, a normal HTTP site. So I think, again, you know, there's limitless possibility for people to actually, you know, exercise the freedom to, you know, bring information to the networks and to bring new information, link it to others, and bring more insight to that. There's tons of opportunity for that, you know, on a clear net, but also on the deep net. You know, we have places like, you know, Tor and, you know, people who don't really understand it may get a spooky connotation of it. But again, it's just another way in how you route network traffic. And again, with I2P as well. And there's also a bunch of other efforts on creating entirely new networking stacks where, you know, instead of using the existing infrastructure that we have now, you know, with the prevalence of radio and wireless technology, why not we create a local internet of just people communicating wirelessly in their own neighborhoods to the point where you, you don't even need like a proper internet connection if you connect enough nodes because they're all talking to each other that you basically have an internet. Right, and that's where self-hosting also gets really fascinating because if you're connecting to even resources that are just local to you, you might not even notice if most of the internet is down. For instance, Cloudflare has outages and there are many people self-hosting their own stuff and they're like, haha, I didn't notice, even though a great deal of many mainstream sites are completely down and unusable. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, the, you know, the occasional YouTube outage where, you know, you archive, you know, a channel that you follow all the videos on, you know, like a peer tube instance, for instance, um, you you won't even know it's all down because boom you have peer to you have all of the videos and all of your stuff locally and again this is what i like about a lot of these free software tools is they give users the control of the bytes on the disk 
rather than corporations that control the bytes on the disk. And of course, you know, even if you're using someone else's PeerTube instance, that's a whole lot better than using, say, YouTube for all of your videos, for instance. Right. And that's the other thing is it's so nice to have something that is indexed, that is searchable. And that's something I miss the most when I'm maintaining my own websites is I actually want to build my own search service as an aside so that it makes it easier to search them without integrating it into the Hugo sites. But truthfully, I think search is one of those things where you really just want a project or a site that does that and does it well. You know, it's such a shame that Google has taken up so much mind share when it comes to search that nobody can really compete despite Google actually declining quality in phenomenal ways over time. And I think as technology kind of becomes more personal, we're going to see more personal searches or at least highly curated search engines where it's they will focus on particular tasks. And the optimal way to navigate that is to really think about what you're searching for, which is where I also get a little concerned. While I'm not anti-AI, I am concerned about how AI tools will be used to obfuscate or gate information away, where instead of people being used to search things, they will ask an AI assistant that will be very opinionated about what the right answer is. And maybe that's useful in some circumstances, but that is still a very powerful information control vector. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think there's a lot. I think we haven't got to the point where it's all doom and gloom. I think there's still a lot that we can do. And I think the most important thing is what we do with it now, because programming, getting into programming is easier than ever. Getting into hosting is easier than ever. Getting into, you know, running free software is easier than ever. And, you know, with just those couple of things alone, you can create any kind of software you want. Again, you don't have to, you know, make some professional, crazy, you know, appeals to, you know, however many users and runs on a Kubernetes cluster and can service millions of users. Now, most software that people run is just made by average Joshmos like me and you. Right. And I think the biggest change moving forward that's going to be even more exciting is how this moves into the hardware, where like right now we have all this amazing capability of making new software, new tools, using them in better ways. And I think the same does apply to hardware because in the past, you know, you'd have these corporate projects that are really just building products for people to use what the corporation wants. But, you know, for instance, if you browse any of these electronics channels on YouTube, they all have, you know, these referral codes to this service where you can design a chip on yourself. You know, I played around with Easy EDA, which is a free software tool that allows you to build your own, you know, circuit boards, design them anyways, and then you can send the order elsewhere. Now, yes, it's sending it to China and there are probably issues with that. But to me, the concept of being able to design our own actual hardware is such a powerful one that if there ever was a serious effort to bring back, you know, chip manufacturing, heck, that would be a real national security objective, you'd think. The capabilities are really just starting to get started when it comes to the hardware side of it. I was kind of, it blew my mind when I really was learning some of the basics of electronics. And I'm like, oh, wow, a motherboard really is just a giant circuit board with all these different peripherals. And you could look at any one of those different, you know, doodads and be like, oh, that's a capacitor. Oh, that's a integrated IC. And integrated ICs themselves are complicated part of this process. But it's fascinating to me 
that as you learn how these things work, you get to see so many more opportunities, like you say, about where we can put new energy and put new focus into. And I think single use devices are one of those things that really can get some love again. You know, we have these power banks that we can plug different devices into and now people can use it to make all sorts of different things and we can really disconnect from the big you know tech regime so to speak and we can build our own devices and that's something that was definitely nowhere near accessible in the past as it is now when it comes to how powerful they are how inexpensive it is to buy a microcontroller that can do so much i mean esp 32s are you know the backbone of so many different projects nowadays that it's amazing what you can do with open source hardware and really i think that's another thing that's just getting started yeah exactly and i think even recently there's been a trend of a lot of interest in a lot of those lower power architectures i mean the 6502 has gotten so much tra traffic recently just you know on various sites um like youtube and you know various social media of people playing around with this hardware and actually getting pretty far um there's there's probably not enough time to talk about it but there's people that have gone to really great efforts to make entirely new os's for these low power systems for these you know under spec hardware systems in the event that you know our you know the titan grip rule of x86 falls and you know our modern internet infrastructure fails to the point where oh now you have a, a tiny os that runs on a game boy advance you have a c compiler you have a bunch of these tools that you can essentially rebuild and use a computer you know like you would on any other device and it's relatively simple you can clone it to pretty much any device and it works with all of you know the abundance of little chips and doodads we have right now yeah and this is where i wonder if this is a bit of a tinfoil theory but i wonder if some of the electronics recycling is a way to keep certain ic's out of the used market you know instead of encouraging people to repair electronics oh just throw it to us and we'll you know destroy it or salvage it for gold or whatever the hell they do with it and then that keeps a lot of components outside of circulation when it probably would be better if there were dedicated places for people who bring these things apart the challenge with that is i think the biggest barrier to that kind of thing is that many of these chips are not very well documented you know when you have these proprietary entire you know boards basically maybe it is hard to salvage you know what's what really could be extracted from those and that's why i'm a little excited about some of the new open hardware initiatives because we can have something that is more akin to some kind of perma computing where you have this chip and it goes across many different devices because it's just a useful chip and we don't need to you know constantly remanufacture the same thing if we need you know a chip that converts you know the signal to a video controller or some other modular part of a larger board and i think when it comes to redefining electronics i wonder how much focus will go into changing even the very concept of a circuit board and try to think of a better way that's easier to manufacture yeah it will have some performance trade-offs but maybe it will have better longevity maybe it will have different trade-offs and i think it is really exciting that no matter where you want to learn whether you want to learn programming whether you want to learn how to run services whether you want to learn how to build chips or even design them it's fascinating to me that there is a ridiculous amount of opportunity if you're just curious and want to spend the time into it 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's tons of opportunities right now. I mean, I'm barely getting my feet wet. And, you know, you can get into systems administration, systems programming. You can get into building your entire an entire theoretical CPU architecture purely off of components. It has never been more convenient, more accessible, accessible and more documented than it is now. I think this is where people really need to start putting their effort into because strike the iron while it's hot. This will last forever. And, you know, if we take advantage of all of this now, all of this available now, when all of the older technology stack dies off, it inevitably, it will inevitably will. We have this whole margin of entirely new stuff to play around with and to use. And where we take our steps now, where we put our effort now, will greatly determine what is in store for the future. And I think a good element of that is that a lot of people are looking hard and fast at email and SMS messages. Because right now, those are legacy systems that are kind of holding back all kinds of different security and privacy innovations because email itself, as good as it is to self-host it, it does not eliminate all the privacy and security concerns related with email. And I am fully expecting that if people can just get institutions to adopt more authentication methods instead of having to rely on these things. You know, Matrix and XMPP both work. Is it really that impossible for a bank to set up their own XMPP or Matrix server and authenticate clients from different, you know, their region or whatever? I don't think it's that hard a job. And I think a whole lot of privacy and honestly, actual security gains could be made if instead of those institutions trying to force a specific authentication mechanism on everybody, there is greater flexibility in the systems used. And that way, if you're somebody who uses Matrix and loves Matrix and will only use Matrix, you can still authenticate as long as you know your server communicates the proper way, but then somebody else can use their systems. And I think it is that flexibility that will help everyone improve because suddenly if all of society is no longer tied to these two things emails and text messages we can actually make real gains in all the other areas because no single thing is the goal and that's why some of the things like passwordless logins whether it's fido u2f or some of the other you know they're adding pass keys to browsers now i don't know too much on the implementation level how amazing those are but I do think novel authentication methods are worth thinking about and worth exploring instead of having, as we've mentioned many times in this discussion, it's better to come up with a good authentication method than have a suboptimal one forced on everybody. And at least for now, we have some time while people are still figuring out what to do about emails and text messages. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Again, there's, there's, there is a bountiful list of opportunities for people to get involved and for people to really improve computing for the better for the future. And, you know, that's kind of what I want to leave as the final note, that core idea, as far as, you know, this first episode in this podcast, talk show, whatever it ends up being, that that's really the core idea that I want to leave people with each episode of this, that there is tons of opportunity, there is tons of ability for people to learn, for people to grow, for people to improve, and for people to take charge and to regain control over technology and over their lives 
as we move on to the future, you know, the grass is greener, believe it or not. Thank you, Theory. And I am honored and overjoyed that you asked me to join you on this. I am very excited for future episodes. It has been a pleasure to be a part of this discussion, and I have nothing but hope and optimism for the future of this project because I think it is going to be a very useful part of the discussion moving forward. Yeah, for sure. I'm so glad to have you on the show as well. Uh, invaluable resource for essentially everything that I don't have full knowledge of yet. So again, I, I want to thank you all for listening and Gabe, especially for you joining me. It's, it's such a privilege to have you on here. And until the next episode, uh, stay cool and make sure to always reclaim what could be yours.